Um, if you have your Bibles with you, um, I'm going to have you um, open to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, um, thank you for this study of First and Second Samuel, and thank you for all the things you are teaching us, and Thank you for these closing chapters, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand and to see the beautiful things you have written in your word. We pray that most of all, we will see Jesus. And Father, I pray you will be with me today and um, that you will use me for an instrument of your grace. And I pray, Father, that if I say anything unworthy of you, that you will erase it from their minds. And I pray, Lord, that we will love you more, for you are gracious and good and kind and full of grace, and you have loved us with an everlasting love, and we give you all the praise. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Well, we have four chapters and two weeks to cover them, and that doesn't seem like a whole lot, because after all, I think, Rebecca, you had five chapters to cover one time. So this doesn't seem like much, except for one thing. These final four chapters are different. I mean, they're chapters that are not so much a continuation of David's reign as God's chosen king, as they are kind of a summary. Now, I, as I was reading through commentaries, um, one of the things I know, some people said, well, this is an epilogue. Some said a synopsis. Some said a summary. So I looked all those words up just to just see what the, what the um, dictionary said. And I kind of rested on summary because according to the dictionary, um, a summary is a shortened version that has been written containing only the main points. And in a way, that's what we have here. It's, it's the main points. It's things that the author wants us to make sure that we grasp hold of, things that the author wants us to kind of have in our pocket to, to take home, things that will help us remember things that we're supposed to carry forth. And so I, I kind of like that. But let me just tell you what we have here, and I've, I've put the chiastic up here, and Lisa's much better at this than me. But anyway, you can see that there is a definite, definite symmetry to what's going on here. That, that the material that we have in 2 Samuel, as we close out First and Second Samuel, is not in chronological order. There's not a sequence to it so much as there is a symmetry. And that symmetry shows that there's a definite, definite pur- purpose. So... Um, If you notice that um, the other thing that when when you're reading through this is that the author made sure that he couldn't contain all of what was going to be said in one literary form. But he gave us narrative, he gave us lists, and he gave us poems, songs. And so um, I think that's what makes this so beautiful, and it's just a treasure trove of things that are going on. I love what Dale Ralph Davis writes. He says, here in these final four chapters, the author is giving us a final perspective on the kingdom. There's another man named Brevard Childs, I think that's how you say it, 
And he is quoted by several of the commentators, and, and I love what he says. He says this. He says, this is a highly reflective theological interpretation of David's whole career, and I love this part, foreshadowing the messianic hope. I love that. So he's saying this, this material is, highly re- is a highly reflective theological interpretation of David's whole career. It kind of brings in all of David's career, but it also foreshadows the messianic hope. Okay, so why am I saying all these things? Well, I want you to understand what's going on here. But the other thing is you have one more week, and I don't want you to give up. I want you to just plow through because this is is good stuff. And um, so I want you to finish well. And the other is for me because I can't possibly cover all of this. So what I've chosen to do, even though... According to the chiastic, we should focus on the psalm and the oracle, and we're going to touch on those things, but I'm going to focus in today and then next week on the two narratives. The reason I'm going to do that is because I think they require some explaining. So I'm going to focus on that, um, and um, maybe I will say some things you, you haven't thought of, maybe not. But um, that's where we'll spend our time the next two weeks. And then I'm going to be kind of doing a summary next week. So anyway, that's where we are. Okay, what did you think of chapter 22, 1 through 14? Yeah, I know. It's, it's unusual. And, and I think the thing is that it, when we first read it, it leaves us with many questions. I mean, it's dark. It's bloody. It isn't the way that we would have written the last four chapters of David's life, I don't think. I think I would have chosen something else to put there, maybe. But um, as, I, as I stood back and looked at our chapter, I realized, well, you did too, I'm sure, that the big stumbling block is, of course, the cultural differences. And we've talked about that before. But... I think our tendency is to read this passage and we just kind of shut down because it's so foreign to us. I mean, we don't do this any well, maybe with ISIS. I mean, this is this isn't as foreign as it used to be, but it just seems this just seems I don't know. I, I think when we first read it, we think, this is not this seems unworthy of David. And we wonder, are we supposed to think this is a good thing or a bad thing? And so I think you have to kind of approach this um, and, and dig deeper into what's going on. So what I'm going to do today is going to be a little unusual. I'm going to first just briefly summarize for you what I believe the chapter is teaching us. Then we're going to leave this chapter and travel back in time to a very unusual event, and it's one that some of you may have heard me teach on before, but I think you'll see why I'm going back there again. And as we go back to this unusual event, I think it will inform us as to what is going on in chapter 21. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, so what do I think that chapter 21, the main thing, now there are several things, but I think the main thing that we are to learn in this chapter And I believe, first of all, that is, God's chosen king is to be a covenant-keeping king. And I think that is absolutely essential. I hope you'll see why. B, Saul 
was a covenant breaker, and David was a covenant keeper, and David points us to our great covenant-keeping king. I think that's what this chapter is about. So, the story in chapter 21, oh, this is cute. The story in chapter 21 is about a broken covenant. Okay, you read about that in, in your story. It was a covenant made in Yahweh's name. It was made centuries before. And um, in order to understand something about covenants and how they are made and what they represent, we're going to go back to this strange chapter. And we're going to look at a covenant ratification ceremony. And it's a covenant ratification story that touches eternity, and it affects us, this covenant ratification ceremony. So um, I want to say one other thing. Because this is such an important passage, it's a passage that um, is just, it's so theologically important that I want want to tell you that I am drawing heavily from um, Ed Clowney, O. Palmer Robertson, Tim Keller, Dale Ralph Davis, and R.C. Sproul. So I'm kind of just taking their words and summarizing them because I want you to know that I'm not just saying this, that this is an important thing for you to know. So, Okay, so I'm going to just read three verses from chapter 12 of Genesis. This is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and, oh, wait, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, now the rest of what we're going to talk about takes place in chapter 15, but because of time, I'm going to kind of summarize what's going on. I'm, I'm not going to read, um, read the whole chapter, but I will give you verses where we are. Okay, so what happens in chapter 12? What's going on? God comes to Abram, and he calls him to leave his home. Now, Abram is living in um, a pagan country. He's living in Babylon, actually. What it's um, and in that country they worship many gods. And God comes to him and he calls Abram by name, and he calls him to leave his home. He calls him to leave everything he knows, everything he loves, all of his security, his inheritance. And he tells him, leave your country, your land, your family, and go to a land. He doesn't tell him what land he's going to. Go to a land that I will show you. Now, in calling Abram to leave, God doesn't tell him where he's going to go. He just calls Abram to trust him. And along with this call, Abram gave, God gave Abram a very big promise. He said, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Okay, that's what I just read. Okay, what Abram, when he heard those words from God, what the promise was, Abram had to understand a few things. When he heard God's amazing promise, it was this. Two things would have to happen for God's promise to come true. And they were two things which Abram didn't have. 
In order to become a great nation that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, he would have to have a son in order to have descendants, and he would have to have land in order to be a great nation. And the passage says that Abram left everything and did as the Lord had said. Now, we go to chapter 15. Abram leaves that land, we, and he goes. And then we come to chapter 15, and it turns out that many years have passed since the events of chapter 12 and God's great promise. And so Abram has left everything, but he still does not have a son, nor does he own any land. He's like a nomad in this land where the Lord has placed him. And so the only thing that Abram has at this time is he is in possession of God's promise. That's the only thing he has. Okay, now in verses 1 through 6, I'm going to summarize it. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision, and we don't know what that means, but something is going on, and the Lord is there, and Abram sees this. And so the Lord comes, and he says to Abram, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And what God is saying to him is, Abram's in the midst of this land. He owns no land. And all of these people own this, are in this land, have been in this land for a long time. And he has nothing. And it's just Abram and a few of his servants. Okay. He says, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And he's meaning this. He means... You have no reason to fear, even though you are in a land of strangers and without defense. For I am a shield to you, Abram. And beyond that, your reward shall be very great. And then Abram said to God, O sovereign Lord, what can you do for me? For I continue childless. It's like Abram is saying to God, Lord, did I misunderstand your promise? I thought that your promise to make me a great nation and a blessing to all the families of the earth meant that you were going to give me descendants. But Lord, I'm getting old. I'm paraphrasing here. And I have no offspring. And I want to more deeply understand your promise, but maybe I misunderstood. And the Lord's response to Abram is not one of anger. It's not one of reprimand. It's just the opposite. He said, no, Abram. You did not misunderstand. And this is, this, I love this about the passage. God took Abram outside and he said, Look, Abram, look up into the heavens and count the stars if indeed you are able. So, Abram, shall your offspring be. Your understanding, Abram, was not too small, was not too big. It was too small. Because you can never really grasp the fullness of what I have promised that is going to come through you. It is that big. And the passage says this. Abram believed God in that big, big promise God has given him. Abram is an old man, and he believes God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what do we have here? Abram was not righteous by his actions, but he was He was counted righteousness because he held on to God and God's power and he believed God's promise. And um, I love this. Um, One commentator writes, he says, faith borrows a righteousness elsewhere. And I love that. And that's what Abram did. He borrowed that righteousness from God. Now, in chapter, in verses 7 through, through 11, Abram had another question. 
something he needed to understand. And as I mentioned earlier, Abram knew that he would need two things, offspring and land. And God had explained to Abram that indeed he would have a multitude of descendants. And even though Abram was getting very old and did not have a son, he believed God for that. He believed that God was that great, and though it seemed impossible that he would give him one son, let alone descendants that outnumbered the stars, he believed God. But the land. Abram has left his inheritance. He has no land. He is in the midst of a great people who inhabit that land. He is supposed to inherit. And yet, God reiterates that the land is still part of the big promise. He says this, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. And Abram says to God, O Lord God, how can I know? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? I have believed your promise of a son, but Lord, how can I possibly know that I'm going to gain this land where enemies are everywhere? How can I know that? And now comes the moment that We're looking at this passage because of this. God answers in the strangest way. Here's what he says to Abram. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, what kind of answer was that to Abram's question? Well, how can I know? And that's what he tells him to do. Well, from what we see in the text, now, it, there might have been more that went on, but from what the text shows us, Abram isn't surprised by that at all. In fact, he immediately did exactly what the Lord requested, and beyond that, Abram knew what to do once he brought the animals to the Lord. He cut them in half, and he arranged, arranged them opposite each other. Now, this is where we get into this cultural difference to understand how incredible this moment was. What was happening is a covenant was about to be ratified. Now, let me explain a covenant in in these terms, so maybe it'll help a little bit. A covenant is a contract of sorts. So, only this is more serious. For example, when we buy a house... What happens? We make a contract, and and there are certain things we're responsible for and certain things that the seller's responsible for. And so we each sign this contract, and then it's recorded, and then if someone doesn't fulfill their part of that contract, you go to court, and the judge will say, you haven't done this, and that person will be forced to take care of that. And that's how we do it. it. It's very easy. I mean, it seems... Seems pretty neat compared to cutting doves and pigeons in half, but that's how we do it. So, but in the culture of the Old Testament, a covenant was made, a promise was made, and the question which stood between the two parties is, how can I know you're going to do what you promised you would do? How can I know that? And so there would be this ceremony of kind of signing the contract. And here's what they would do. You would take an animal, and you would slay it, and then you would cut it into two pieces and lay it on the ground. And then, normally, both parties would walk between the pieces, and this is what you would be saying. If I do not keep my word, as I have promised, may I be cut off, may I be destroyed, may my flesh lay on the ground to feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's what it was saying. That's how serious a covenant was. And so... 
a covenant was very serious business. And when you made your promises, you were bound by blood to keep them. So it seems when God told Abram what to do, Abram assumed, it seems this way, that they were about to enact a covenant ratification ceremony. They were, and, and they would be doing that. That's what's going on here, and that's why this is so important. Because now we go on to see what happens next, and this is in verses 12 to 16. It says that the sun was setting. Okay, remember, this is, we're having this in kind of a vision. Remember this. So this is all being seen, and here's what, what again is happening. The sun was setting but it was not yet dark. And so it was still light out, but the sun was setting and a dreadful darkness came down upon Abram. It was a darkness that could be felt. It was terrifying. It was a darkness of heart and mind. And in scripture, when a darkness like this happens, it's a sign of judgment. It's a, if, if you look at the, at the plague of darkness in Exodus, um, what happens is that it is the forewarning of the final plague of the death of the firstborn. It was about, it was a warning of a day of judgment. And so in the midst of this darkness, this darkness that could be felt, Abram experienced this. And in that time, the Lord spoke about exile and captivity and slavery and dark and hard times that would last a long period. However, even though God said this would happen, he assures Abram that his promise will remain intact. God will keep his promise. Then in 1720, verses 17 to 20, then the, the heavy darkness lifted and the darkness of night appeared. And then this fearful light appeared, just a fearful light. And it was a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch passing through the pieces. Now, what's going on here? Well, here's what we know. The word for smoke and the word for blaze are the same words used when God's presence filled the tabernacle and was over the, the mercy seat. It's the same, it is also is the same words when God came down and led Israel through the wilderness. What we have here is that God was passing through the pieces. That's what we're supposed to understand. That was the presence of God going through the pieces. In other words, God was sealing his part of the covenant. He passed through the pieces. He will keep his promise. It's as if he's saying, Abram, I have promised to bless you and bring blessing to the world through you. And if I don't, and this is a quote from Tim Keller, if I don't do this, may my immutability suffer mutation May my immortality suffer mortality. May my omnipotence suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. May I be destroyed and my body cut off from the land of the living. And now it is Abram's turn to walk through the pieces. Abram must make his promise of faithfulness to God. But you see, the amazing thing is this. God doesn't call Abram to walk through the pieces. God alone made the covenant. It was a covenant of absolute grace. 
And by doing so, God was speaking the gospel. He was saying this, Abram, I will take the curse of the covenant upon myself. Abram, may I be cut off if I do not keep my promise. But Abram, may I be cut off if you or your descendants do not keep your promise. I will bless you even if I have to die. And that's why this covenant holds sway on eternity. Because centuries later, darkness came down again as the Son of Man hung on the cross. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God could not answer his Son because the promise had been made. John Murray says this. He says, The Abrahamic promise so explicitly set forth in Genesis 15 underlies the whole subsequent development of God's redemptive promise. Abram had no idea what it cost God to walk through the pieces that night many centuries before, but the Lord knew. He knew indeed he would face the curse of a broken covenant, not because of his unfaithfulness, but because of ours. And our story continues to be held in that story of the promise. Now, back to our part for today. How does that day so many centuries before carry import into chapter 21? The Lord's brought this famine on the land because of a broken covenant. A covenant that was made centuries before, but it was made by Joshua representing the people of Israel, and it was made in the name of Yahweh. And you read about that in your homework. I'm not going to go through all of that. But the promise remained. That covenant was to be intact, and it had remained so for many centuries. And so the covenant promise remained until Saul, king of Israel, broke the covenant and thus brought the covenant curse to bear. What took place in chapter 21 was not human sacrifice. And though it seems horrendous to us so far removed as we watch these men being killed and hung and watch a mother's anger, I mean agony, it was because of a broken covenant and the price had to be paid. And that was the promise that was made. And, and Saul broke it. And David, the king, is shown to be a covenant-keeping king. And the text is careful to tell us that not only does he fulfill that obligation of the broken covenant by seeing that what the Gibeonites required, he did, but that he exempts Mephibosheth because David had a covenant with Jonathan. Again, a covenant-keeping king. And then the final act of that story is David as the compassionate king as he finally buries the bones and um, of Saul's remaining family. And some say that that is the closing of Saul's reign, that that is the end of Saul's reign and as the not covenant-keeping king. And now, but David stands as the one. And then it says the Lord sent rain. My friends, this is, this is what is so powerful about that. That covenant-breaking is costly and heart-wrenching and bloody. And we must come to our covenant-keeping king, to the one who would pay the price made centuries ago, the one who would hang on the cross for you and me. 
the one whose mother would cry in agony upon him when the deep darkness of judgment came down upon him, the one who would, who would give his son to die in our place for the broken covenant. The story of the broken covenant in 2 Samuel 21 gives us a picture of the cost of a broken covenant. But the covenant had been broken and the price had to be paid. God takes covenants very seriously. I think we've lost that. But the picture is that David is the covenant-keeping king and he would see that the covenant curse was enforced. And we are meant to feel the deep sorrow as we watch Rizbah. We are meant to feel that sorrow and that sadness and to feel the horror of seven men hung on crosses. But we also must understand that God will make us see that nothing will keep him from fulfilling his covenant, no matter what the cost. We're coming to the remembrance of that day when God's son would be tried and beaten and mocked and spikes hammered into his hands and feet and raised on a cross. Remembrance of a day when a darkness descended on the land and God the Son's immutability suffered mutation and his immortality suffered mortality and his omnipotence suffered powerless. When the Son of God was cut off from the land of living, God takes covenants seriously. In the Old Testament, God gives us shadows and types and men and women who are at times amazing and wonderful and at times confusing and weak and sinful, but they give us glimpses in their stories, seeds of the one great truth that we still do not grasp completely. Abraham and David teach us much, but they were sinners in need of grace. There is only one who could hold a love so infinite and pay a price so costly. The true son of Abraham, the true king from the house of David, the one who would bring blessing to all the nations, the true covenant-keeping king who would pay the price for our broken covenant. We have to understand, as we read this story in 2 Samuel, as we go back to the covenant in chapter 15 of Genesis, how horrible would it be if we didn't have a king who kept his covenant? If we couldn't put our trust on that kind of king, what would we have? That was the kind of king Saul was. This is the kind of king that David was represented. An everlasting king, a covenant, ordered and in all things secure. Covenant promises of God are our warrant for asking for our security and for receiving it. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the power of your word. and Thank you for these awesome moments in scripture that are hard to understand, and yet they're so beautiful and um, infinitely important. Would you help us to understand how much you love us, how faithful you are, and that your covenant will never be broken. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.